0: This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in November of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, Philip Isle will join us to talk about his book, Prescription for Pain, which follows his years-long investigation into his father's old classmate, former high school valedictorian Paul Volkman, who once seemed destined for greatness after earning his M.D. and Ph.D. from prestigious University of Chicago, He's now serving four consecutive life sentences at a federal prison in Arizona. Volkman was a central figure in a massive pill mill scheme in southern Ohio. His pain clinics accepted only cash, employed armed guards, and dispensed a torrent of opioid painkillers and other controlled substances. For nearly three years, Volkman remained in business despite raids by law enforcement and complaints from patients' family members. Prosecutors would ultimately link him to the overdose deaths of 13 patients, though investigators explored his uh, ties to at least 20 other deaths. Philip Hiles is an award-winning freelance journalist based in his hometown Providence, Rhode Island. He's a former news editor of the alt-weekly newspaper The Providence, Phoenix. Since that paper is closed in 2014, he's contributed to The Atlantic, Men's Health, Boston Globe, Huffington Post, and Columbia Journalism Review, among other outlets. He's taught uh, writing and journalism classes at Brown University, Columbia's University School of Arts, Rhode Island uh, uh, School of Design. He holds an MFA in nonfiction writing from Columbia's uh, University School of the Arts. Uh, So, Philip Powell, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Tom
0: um so this uh, this book is a long time in the making um let me uh f- let me first um ask you um what you you say you've written that uh, this would be an interesting story in and of itself um but uh i guess that connection right a classmate of your father's maybe what got you fascinated here
1: that's right um Paul Volkman, the subject of this book, was not somebody I knew or, in fact, had even heard of before I started working on this story. Uh, he didn't come over to our family house for dinners. We didn't go on family vacations. Uh, but when I was 23 years old, I learned that my dad, this was back in 2009, uh, that his former college and med- medical school classmate, a guy he had been on a close parallel track with for the better part of 10 years, uh, had been indicted for this massive and horrifying prescription drug dealing scheme in Southern Ohio that uh, prosecutors alleged had led to the deaths of a number of his patients. Um, Paul and my dad had fallen out of touch mainly after medical school. So uh, when I asked my dad if he had any idea what what had happened to this guy, how had he veered so far off of uh, the pretty promising path he had been on uh, my dad didn't really have any answers, um, nor, in fact, when I reached out to other classmates, uh, did, did they really know what happened to this guy? So when I started out in this story, I was a young journalist uh, just getting my start in this field. I had read and been inspired by In Cold Blood. And this mystery fell into my lap of how does a guy with an MD, PhD from the University of Chicago in 1975 wind up? federally indicted in 2007 and accused of these horrifying crimes. And that mystery took a hold of me and uh, uh, never really let up. And I've, I've been following it on and off for more than a decade.
0: Uh, so this, uh, your research included, uh, I think, several interviews with Volkman himself, right?
1: That's right. Um, so when I learned about this story, which was a couple of years after his indictment, but as it turned out a few years before he went to trial... And when he was indicted, he had been arrested and was briefly in prison, but mostly he was free uh, awaiting trial. Uh, When I learned about this, I was about to enter the graduate writing program you mentioned at the top uh, at Columbia. And I probably would have kept working on the project, the story if he hadn't gotten in touch with, uh, if he hadn't agreed to an interview, but certainly I wanted to know if he would be up for speaking to me. And so as I describe in the book, uh, in the fall of 2009, I wrote him a letter, a short letter explaining who I was, explaining that my dad was his former classmate, telling him that I would read a bit about his case online, but that I was curious if I was going to write about it to hear his side of things. And uh, within about a week, I got a cell phone call from him. And a few months later, uh, I drove out to Chicago and that began the first of a number of in-person interviews, which took place uh, over the span of about a year before his trial, and then after his trial, we continued to correspond both in print and via email uh, for another six or seven years.
0: And uh, then, as you've said, um, th- th- this is the story is also a window into uh, uh, what one publication, Vox, called the country's deadliest drug crisis ever. There's a bigger context here, of course, and I, I think you talked to a lot of people there in in uh, that Ohio area, Portsmouth.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I'm speaking to you from Rhode Island. You're in Utah. I can't imagine either of us are insulated from this opiate epidemic, which has reached literally every corner of this country by now. Um, But in certain parts of the country, uh, it's been particularly bad. And Southern Ohio, right on the Kentucky border, also near West Virginia, this town of Portsmouth, Ohio, where the majority of Volkman's crimes took place, uh all told he was active in these uh pain clinics from 2003 to early 2006 and for the bulk of that time he was in portsmouth um this part of the country has just been ravaged by uh prescription drug abuse and now following the crackdown of prescription drug abuse heroin fentanyl and so on um it's been called an epicenter for the national prescription drug uh crisis and even before volkman arrived in 2003, I found newspaper articles where the nickname for the town of Portsmouth, the Oxycontin capital of the world, was being thrown around. So this was already quite a problem uh, when he showed up in 2003.
0: What, uh, what did folks in Portsmouth uh, uh, say? What, what, what was your impression of, of the town that became the Oxycontin capital of the, uh, of the world? What, what I guess I'm asking what uh, what are some of the factors that lead to such a high addiction rate?
1: Uh, There were a few factors, Um, certainly uh, Portsmouth is kind of where the Rust Belt meets Appalachia. And it was a part of the country I hadn't been to, hadn't even really thought about much before there was this connection to the story. And I feel so privileged that when I went there, these folks were so generous uh, in sharing their stories with me. Um, And I take that responsibility as an outsider writing about this community seriously. Um, So definitely there was a lot of economic depression down there for for decades. This has been one of the poorest parts of the state of Ohio. And of course, Appalachia is one of the poorest parts of the country. Um, There's been some talk about how Portsmouth's uh, location right on the border between Kentucky and also very close to West Virginia allowed for kind of cross state movement, which made it perhaps harder to track people who were filling prescriptions, uh, getting prescriptions in one place, filling them in another. Um and I've also heard folks who who have questioned why it took so long for this uh this this problem to to raise to to, to gain attention in places like Columbus the state capital and the national capital in Washington DC and they've thought, you know, m- maybe there's some um ingrained prejudice against folks in the Appalachian area that that made this uh took a while for this to get the attention it deserves. But one thing I would say about Portsmouth is, as part of my reporting, I, as I said, drove to Ohio and spoke to Paul Volkman, who then and now uh, maintains his innocence. He says that he was a law-abiding, conscientious, compassionate doctor who was treating desperately suffering people and giving them the medication that they needed. And when you sit with this very intelligent, highly qualified man for a few days, even if his story doesn't quite add up, it's possible to suspend some of your disbelief. But a few months later, when I traveled to Portsmouth in person, the first of many trips I took there, and you hear just how bad this problem has been down there, and you hear how many doctors who worked at these pain clinics got themselves into similar trouble, and you hear how many folks know people or related to people who have overdosed, it becomes very hard, if not impossible, to believe Volkman's story. And so, I'm in the in the book. I try to convey both of those things to my readers: uh, what Volkman says about what he was up to, and then just the, how implausible that becomes when when you go to this
0: area. I want to get into uh, Paul Volkman's history a little bit, but before we do that, um, a little more on the context. Um, I, w- I wonder. Uh, how much this factor plays in the factor that this is, these are legal drugs, right? Prescribed. Um, You know, we have a conception of heroin. It's, you know, it's it's illegal. It's on the street. Uh, uh, But, but this, this opioid epidemic is these are prescription drugs.
1: That's right. Um, And, and uh, in the course of this research, I, I learned about the, the Controlled Substances Act, which was the law passed in the early 70s that Volkman was charged under. He was charged with prescription drug dealing with death or injury resulting and a few other charges. And it's it's this um kind of unusual situation where you have this scheduling of drugs, as they call it in, in the nomenclature of the law, and some drugs are banned outright, you know, LSD, cocaine, heroin. But these other drugs, the opiates, are scheduled two, three, controlled substances, and they're in this odd middle ground where if you're walking around with some Oxycontin in your pocket and you don't have a prescription for it, that's illegal and that's a crime and you can be prosecuted for that crime of possession of this substance. But if you have a prescription, it's completely legal. Um, So these drugs occupy an odd place. And I do think that that made it particularly thorny uh, for investigating and prosecuting these crimes because... Um, this was a doctor with uh, you know, good qualifications and he wrote his prescriptions and he had a valid DEA number for a while at least. And um, this took place at a time as folks who are watching these shows on Netflix, Painkiller or Hulu, Dope Sick, Now, this t- was taking place at a time when the pharmaceutical industry and medicine in general was uh, really bullish about the cause of treating pain. Um, They said that pain had been neglected and undertreated for decades, and, you know, behind the banner of Purdue and OxyContin, um, there was a big push, the legitimacy of which is still uh, up for debate, to treat pain more aggressively, and that's when we heard about this campaign to make pain the fifth vital sign uh, we saw in hospitals and clinics, and so Volkman's crimes, I think, would have been interesting to me in their own right, but they're part of this bigger picture of a moment when there were a lot of forces moving in the direction of let's get let's make it easier for people to get these drugs
0: um I just want to get a little background on paul volkman um you you've uh, written that a friend who knew him in med school said i honestly thought one day i'd pick up the newspaper see paul volkman had been given the nobel prize in medicine he was very very promising a uh, career seemed ahead of him
1: yeah, and and that's I think what really captured my attention about this story instantly. Um, it's hard to imagine that there are people more with a, with more impressive resumes in federal prison right now than Paul Volkman, who, as you said at the top, is a high school valedictorian. He has an MD PhD from the University of Chicago, which was part of a federally funded scholarship program called the Medical Scientist Training Program that he and my father both attended. Um, And uh, he is by all accounts a bright guy. One detail that didn't make it into the book, but he's a a longtime chess player. And I found a clipping in the Chicago Tribune from his time uh, during medical school when a world champion chess player came to Chicago for an exhibition match against a number of challengers in Chicago, and a few of them won. And one of them was Paul Volkman. Uh, this young medical student so he was a really bright guy um which of course doesn't mean doesn't make him immune from later uh committing crimes and i think i was interested in that um interested in exploring how a person with such promise goes in this direction and exploring from a personal level how a guy who on paper looked so similar to my dad at least to start wound up in such a such a drastically different place
0: What, uh, you know, med school, what did he want to do? What did he start out uh, doing?
1: Volkman had an odd career. Um, He and my dad were not even really trained to see patients, although for different reasons, they both end up seeing patients. One thing that interested me about this, uh, this story was diving into the world of medical research. That is, the people who are working... In uh, often university settings, with funding from the federal government, and exploring new cures and treatments that eventually make their way to patients uh, through trials and through uh, published work, but they aren't necessarily seeing patients themselves, and uh, that's what they were trained to do. Volkman uh, flared out for medical research fairly quickly, for uh, he claims that he was kind of. Um, that a supervisor of his wrongfully uh, refused to publish his supposedly brilliant research that he was working on in the late 70s Uh, the guy the lab director who made that decision who i interviewed for the book had a very different memory of what happened he said volkman was an unremarkable researcher who was moonlighting in emergency rooms at night and was kind of distracted and didn't publish a lot and didn't get a lot of funding so uh volkman left medical research within a few years of graduating, even though many of his classmates from uh, the program he was in went on to distinguish careers in medical research. And he went into pediatrics to start. Uh, for He claims that he liked kids and that was uh, an area that, that appealed to him, even though, uh, again, his classmates were a bit mystified because he didn't seem like a people person necessarily. Um, pediatrics didn't turned out to make enough money to his liking to support his family his two children at the time so he started moonlighting in emergency rooms in chicago and then eventually started taking temporary jobs uh, which in the medical world are called locum tenens positions at uh, emergency rooms around the midwest for a few days or weeks at a time and did that for a number of years but during that time he was sued for malpractice a few times a couple of these cases went to trial and verdicts against him, a couple others were settled, and ultimately, what was a real inflection point in his career was he found himself unable to get malpractice insurance in the early 2000s, which prompted pretty much desperation on his part. His medical employment uh, options were drastically reduced, and at that point, he found an ad for a pain clinic in Southern Ohio that didn't require malpractice insurance, and that is how he wound up um uninsurable kind of desperate to maintain his uh fairly expensive lifestyle in Chicago that's how he wound up working at these clinics down you know hundreds of miles away from where he lived in Chicago well
0: let's use that as a cliffhanger we'll go to break um and, uh, and then we'll we'll see how uh, this once promising doctor got into this uh and you know this 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 huge pill mill and uh, I want to talk uh, after the break as well. Uh, you know, how does this happen? Uh, th- this this journey, right, from not only this doctor but but many doctors, from respectability to uh, you know essentially crime bosses in some cases. Um, we're talking with Philip Isle. His uh, book will be coming out in a few months. It's called Prescription for Pain. It is available for for pre order right now. Fascinating, fascinating story. Um, of his father's old classmate, former high school valedictorian Paul Volkman, once a promising physician who uh, ended up uh, receiving, I think, the, the longest sentence of any of these uh, doctors, uh, four life sentences. I'll uh, we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're talking with the writer Philip Isle. Uh, His uh, new book is uh, coming out soon. It's called Prescription for Pain. You can pre-order it right now. It follows his years-long investigation into his father's old classmate, uh, Paul Volkman, uh, seemed uh, to to be a promising uh, doctor, ended up uh, running a massive pill mill scheme in uh, southern Ohio. And, of course, uh, this gets us into the broader opioid crisis. It's uh, affected so many uh, across across the country. Uh, so, uh, Philip, I'll um, want to talk a little bit about how, you know, this journey, not only uh, Paul Volkman, but others. And you, you, you mentioned some others in the book, write about some of these others in the book, um, you know, respectable doctors um, who are doing something uh, that's uh, seen as noble pain management um, w- with these new, you know, shiny drugs, opioids. Um, What about what is it the the lure of massive money? What uh, how (laughs) how how do these doctors take this journey uh, to essentially essentially leaving medicine and becoming, you know, crime lords?
1: Well, I'll say a couple of things. One, even though my book is coming out in 2024, when we are well into the story of the opiate epidemic and how it happened, I think uh, a lot of the attention so far has has rightfully focused on uh, the pharmaceutical companies, in particular, Purdue Pharma, Patrick Radden Keefe's book, Empire of Pain, uh, The Crime of the Century, Alex Gibney's documentary, these two shows I mentioned earlier, Dope Sick and Painkiller. Um, and, And there's absolutely a major story there, but there's also another story that's a bit lower to the ground, closer to the action, so to speak, of these dozens and dozens of doctors in virtually every state in the country uh, who broke bad, so to speak, and started out legitimate and were uh, accused of some kind of impropriety related to opioid uh, painkillers. And Paul Volkman was one of them. Um, As you mentioned, I talk about a number of these cases in my book, Partly because you can't tell the story of Portsmouth, Ohio, of Scioto County, and of Eastern Kentucky across the river without zooming out to the context that this is a place, a region, where over, let's say, 25 years, starting in the mid-90s through today, has sent an extraordinary number of doctors off to prison who were charged locally or federally. Um, Another reason why it's hard to buy Volkman's claims of innocence is that he was just one in a long chain of doctors who had these similar uh, clinics and were charged and convicted of similar crimes. Um, These cases are interesting because they fall into kind of two categories, I would say. One category is the defiant doctor, who Volkman would be an example of, who still maintains his innocence. Uh, still maintains that he was doing the right thing by his patients, that he was treating pain, that he was brave, courageous. These are, you know, words he'll use to describe himself, Um, that he was doing the most fundamental thing that a doctor ought to do, which is relieve the suffering of patients. Um, There's another category, and, and there are other doctors who have been convicted or charged who are similarly defiant. There are other doctors who did plead guilty, and who in their sentencing memos or things that they said during court proceedings will shine some light on the reasons this might've happened. In some cases, it's marital strife. In other cases, it's substance abuse. Um, In other cases, it's an illness of theirs. There was a doctor who uh, was down in Southern Ohio who apparently went down there after he had had a number of strokes and found it hard to get work anywhere else. Um, one of the most honest of them, who I don't necessarily excuse what he did, but was one of Volkman's predecessors in this area, this was a doctor in Kentucky who got convicted, his name was Frederick Cohn, and he at least got points for honesty because in one of his, I think it was a sentencing proceeding, he told the judge, I had never seen so much money in my life, I got greedy, and I am guilty, and that quote stuck with me, and it's in the book, One because he just explained what happened. It was he fell for the temptation, but two, it was such a stark contrast to Volkman, who still to this day claims basically he was a heroic guy, who was you know severely misunderstood and who was the victim of a grave injustice. Um, So these these stories of you know the the opiate epidemic is definitely a story of corporate malfeasance, even though very few. prescription uh, pharmaceutical company executives have gone to prison. Um, But it's also a story of kind of widespread medical malfeasance. And there are a lot of stories with similarities to Volkman's from this era.
0: I want to talk about some some specifics, kind of some gradations of this. Uh, You write about a a doctor named David Proctor, uh, who was known as the the pill Mill King, uh, although his operation was uh, ended up being smaller than I think Volkman's. Uh, but but uh, sort of early on, he's in Kentucky, I think. Um, so the, the neighbors uh, to his to his office uh, report that people, you know, it's, it's, it's like a tailgating before a concert. There are a bunch of people hanging out waiting for him to open. Uh, so I guess he would be just writing out prescriptions sometimes without even uh, uh, seeing people. That's maybe a, a starting point to, to how these things uh, happen.
1: Well, there's an excellent book by a reporter named Sam Quinones uh, that came out in 2015 called Dreamland, uh, which tells the story of the American opiate epidemic, both the prescription side and the heroin side. And in Sam's book, he talks about David Proctor quite a bit and basically gives him the, I don't know if it's the honor, but the name of the godfather of the pill mill, the inventor of the pill mill, the guy who basically started this model of Cash only high volume churning people through. And this was right down the road from where Paul Volkman was practicing in just a few years prior. And in fact, there was a direct link between the two of them in that the woman who founded the clinics uh, where Volkman wound up working and a woman by the name of Denise Huffman had It was kind of unclear to me the connections, but she was a patient of Proctor and had at least, it seemed, worked in his office for a period of time. And certainly the folks in the local community looked at Denise as somebody who had learned the ropes from Proctor and then once he got convicted, had stepped in and started her own operation. Um, Yeah, so you go down to Southern Ohio or Eastern Kentucky. Uh, The story of these crooked doctors is unfortunately very familiar Familiar to them. I remember during one of my first trips to the area, I was interviewing a journalist in West Virginia and asking him about Volkman, and he said something to the effect of, "You know, it's hard for me to remember which one he was because we've just seen this so many times."
0: Uh, So, tell me about Volkman's uh, operation. It's, it's, you know, armed guards. I think at some point, Um, it's as I read about this. i'm not reading about a you know a medical operation it seems like and reading about a drug operation
1: yeah and when you learn about the details it's really wild how much he goes out of his way to defend he defends it all and that included at one point working out of a house an unmarked house in a residential neighborhood uh and having patients basically you know hanging out on the front porch hanging out in the backyard This usually sleepy street, uh, clogged with cars and so on. Um, But when he first went down to Ohio and partnered up with Denise Huffman, uh, alarm bells started ringing in local pharmacies pretty much immediately. At Volkman's trial in 2011, at least a half dozen pharmacists were called to testify about the reasons why they refused, ultimately, pretty quickly to fill his scripts. They thought they were excessive. One pharmacist talked about a woman who was quite pregnant coming in and with a prescription for opiates. They said that these patients were often young and didn't seem to be in any visible pain, that they came in in waves, that they were willing to pay cash. Uh, So there were all these red flags raised by local pharmacies. And pretty soon after his arrival, Volkman found himself unable to get his prescriptions filled anywhere at local pharmacies. And he and his clinic owner, Denise, did something that was technically legal at the time, which was they applied with the Ohio State Board of Pharmacy to establish an on-site dispensary, uh, basically an in-house pharmacy. And this was in operation within a few months of Volkman's arrival in Southern Ohio. And it meant that he no longer had to rely on the trust or of of external pharmacists. Um, and he could write these prescriptions and his patients could fill these rather large scripts in-house. And that was a booming business for a while, even if it raised all kinds of flags among um with the DEA and with distributors, I've seen documents from the DEA's investigation uh, that talk about alarmed phone calls they got from medical distributors in other states who were filling the orders for this dispensary, and this small clinic in southern Ohio was, was uh, you know, requesting amounts of opiates that they had never seen before, or that they were alarming enough where these folks picked up the phone and called the DEA. So it was in this environment of cash-only pain clinic, economically depressed area, uh, an on-site dispensary, which is essentially a bank when you consider the value of the medications being stored there, that uh, they decided they needed uh, some pretty heavy duty security for the operation. And there was a, a video that the DEA took during a raid of this clinic and that was later shown at the trial, where they kind of slowly walk through the clinic with the camcorder, and in the course of twenty-five minutes or so walking through the clinic, the camera passes over numerous guns on the premises. It's it's just a surreal thing to see.
0: Um, so prosecutors would ultimately link Volkman to the overdose deaths of thirteen patients. Um, what are the what are the families of of these folks? saying about this
1: well um those were some of the hardest conversations i had for this book and also some of the most meaningful um if you look at the amount of time that i spent on this book almost 15 years i would say a lot of that time is due to the fact that I, i i don't know if i struggled with the weight of the responsibility but I took that responsibility of telling these stories really seriously and I wanted to get them right factually and I wanted them to not feel exploitative and I wanted to, to the best of my ability, convey that these people were human beings with hobbies and professions and uh, people who loved them and they were more than just their tragic final moments which were discussed at the trial. and I'm quite proud of the work I wound up doing. I wound up wound up speaking to over 25 family members of these uh, deceased patients. And maybe the most important thing that they told me is a resounding um, contrast to Volkman who claimed he was innocent he was heroic, he was helping these people. None of these people down in Ohio and Kentucky thought this guy was helping. And that was consistent with the community at large. It was very hard to find anybody down there who thought this guy was legit. And that includes these family members. Um, and from these family members, you you hear the stories of um, concern at watch, you, you know, you would often hear about a change in their loved one's behavior, that they started out in pain, but they went to the clinic and the pain care seemed to be eclipsed by, you know, signs of drug use. They would nod off at um, odd times, you know, at a meal. Or they would, um, you know, steal belongings from the house and go and pawn them. Or, you know, the the sister-in-law of one deceased patient said she had already um, basically made a rule that her brother-in-law wasn't going to come over to the house to be around their kids. She didn't feel safe around him. Um, And you also heard stories about, and some of these folks testified at the trial, about how concerned and alarmed they were and how when some cases they took really extraordinary measures calling the clinic to plead with them not to prescribe to their loved one or going to the clinic themselves uh and and trying to talk to the doctor to say, please, you know, my loved one is addicted. If you do this, if you keep doing this, they're gonna die. So on. And Volkman didn't heed those uh those pleas. And um so it it was just a tragic, a tragic story all around. And a story of just a really kind of destructive arrogance on his part.
0: Uh, So the, the court uh, apparently held him directly responsible for these 13 deaths.
1: Yes. Right. I mean, yet another, there were a lot of things that kind of fell into place for this to be uh, a story that I could write a full book about. And I mentioned Volkman's arrogance a minute ago. And in some ways as a writer, I benefited from that arrogance because that arrogance led to him refusing to claim any responsibility for any of this. And unlike a lot of defendants who were charged and including doctors who were charged, he refused to take a plea. Um, He was offered a plea deal that wasn't satisfactory to him. He was never gonna plead guilty because he doesn't believe he's guilty. So as a result, there was this really lengthy trial in federal court in Cincinnati in 2011 uh, that spanned weeks. Where the government called 70 witnesses who ranged from former patients to former employees to law enforcement officials to medical experts, and the defense called 10 witnesses of their own. And this left for me a transcript that was over 4,000 pages long that tells the story of what happened inside these clinics. And um, it's an extraordinary document. And I'm not, it would have been a very different book if this hadn't gone to trial. And I wasn't, I I didn't get access to that extraordinary amount of information. But yes, uh, to your question, after his trial, uh, a jury convicted him uh, of most of the counts that he had been charged with of, of drug dealing. And they held him directly responsible for the deaths of four patients. And a year later, uh, the judge in the case gave him this extraordinary sentence of four consecutive life terms in prison corresponding with those four patient deaths.
0: And of course, you say he does not take responsibility, In um, fact, there, there's an extraordinary uh, passage in the book. You say uh, in one of your letters, you're corresponding with him. You asked him if at any point in his training he'd recited the uh, Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. What, what did he say?
1: He said, um, no, he never recited the Hippocratic Oath of first do not harm because that was such a low bar, such a low standard. And he was, I forget the exact phrasing he used. He was so far above the, uh, the Hippocratic Oath. His uh, his medical care was so sophisticated, so exemplary that you know he wouldn't deign to to stoop so low as to to recite the oath that represented such a low bar. Uh, which is uh, an indication of how he thinks and, and thought of himself.
0: Um, I want to return to the, the to the families here that they're, they're you know representative of so many families across the nation. Yeah. Um, there's so many factors here. I, I wonder where they place the blame. Um, you know, obviously on uh, doctors like uh, Dr. Boltman, the you know, the drug companies, but well, the government. Uh, you know, where where are they pointing the finger?
1: It's it's a mix. Um, that's another fascinating factor about this whole thing is uh, there's an excellent book by Anna Lemke called Drug Dealer MD, which came out, I think, maybe in 2016. She's out of Stanford and she really casts a wide net of blame and responsibility for the opiate epidemic, not just the uh, pharmaceutical companies, but also the regulatory agencies like the FDA. And the academic establishment, which in many ways got kind of co-opted by the pharma companies. Um, and when I spoke to the family members, they uh, they had a mix. Of, I mean, a lot of them held Volkman directly responsible. Some of them, a minority, but it's worth mentioning, felt that it was mostly their loved one's fault for not being able to kick the habit or get the help they needed. I, one person told me, you know, she chose to cut about his sister, she chose to keep doing this, to keep doing this. Uh, but mostly the the blame went toward uh, Volkman and his clinic owners. There was also some blame and some real anger uh, about the pharmaceutical companies. And, um, and there was also and I talk a bit about this in the book, uh, a pharmacist, after Volkman parted ways with his clinic owner, Denise, He was back on his own and no longer had access to the dispensary and had to once again seek out pharmacies that would be willing to fill his scripts. And again, very few, uh, if any, local pharmacies were willing to do that. But there was a pharmacist up in Columbus, which was about an hour or more north of where he was practicing, who would fill uh, some of the scripts for him, a a large volume of them. And this guy made a lot of money in the process. And so there was some blame that, that, that went there as well to this pharmacist who was also uh, later indicted and convicted and spent some time in prison. So opi- the opiate epidemic in general is this issue. First of all, it's a man-made crisis, which is worth remembering, not a natural disaster. Um, but there's a lot of blame to go around from pharma, And we see this in the litigation that's taken place uh, against pharmaceutical companies, but also against distributors and pharmacies. And you name it. I mean, um, medical associations, uh, the American Pain Society closed down uh, in recent years. So, yeah, there is unfortunately a lot of blame to go around.
0: Uh, finally, before we go to break and uh, after break, I want to go into a couple of uh, different topics. Um, are we making progress as a society with this? Well, it's been much in the news. Of course, uh, you know, books like yours shine some light. Are we you, do you think we're making progress?
1: I would say yes and no. Um, I mean, for instance, down in Ohio, I went and reported, I, did, I made my last reporting trip there last fall. And they said that the pill mills were closed. There had been 8, 9, 10 of them in the county at one point. Um, and there were a lot of rehab options available in a really booming uh, uh, addiction care industry. But that hadn't, and that had solved, mainly addressed the pill problem, but these other opiates had swooped in as many folks in public health had predicted that when we cut off the spigot of prescription drugs people are going to turn to heroin and after heroin of course came fentanyl which is so lethal um one of the folks that i spoke to said you know it used to be when we had overdoses from prescription drugs when the emt's arrived they had a chance to maybe give the person narcan and revive them but with fentanyl these people are already gone um so it's it's a yes and no situation. I think um the the country at large is is really coming to understand how how things went so wrong with this push to prescribe opiates in the nineties and early two thousands. And I think we've reined that in a bit. Um, but these really um dangerous drugs like heroin and fentanyl have swooped in and taken uh, their place, and if you look at the graphs of prescription, or excuse me, of overdose deaths, they just keep going up, and the rate sometimes in recent years has gotten even steeper. I remember, you know, reading about in 2020 when COVID hit, uh, o- overdose deaths just just keep kept climbing. It's it's really horrifying stuff. So it's it's a yes and no answer.
0: Uh, we're talking with Philip Isle. Uh, his book is Prescription for Pain. Fascinating, important story. Uh, it comes out next year, but you can pre-order right now, um, and uh, we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer Philip Isle. His uh, book "Prescription for Pain," uh, important book about a particular doctor, Paul Volkman, once promising physician. Who ended up uh, running a uh, massive pill mill in uh, southern Ohio, um, and is now serving uh, four life sentences, um, and uh, talking about the broader opioid epidemic as well. Uh, so, Philip, um, I want uh, to turn uh, to to something that uh, you have talked about, uh, and I think would be very useful, valuable uh, for for listeners who may be dealing with the same thing. That's uh, some mental health. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what you deal with and and how you you manage this.
1: Yeah, um, I've written about a lot of subjects in my journalism career. I've written a lot of articles about my home state of Rhode Island, politics, media. I've written about the Freedom of Information Act. I've written about uh, prescription drugs, obviously, with this book. But I'd say around five years ago, I started writing about mental health. And that was an outgrowth of my own issues with anxiety and depression, which at times uh, really knocked me on my back. I had periods of burnout and depression that uh, made it, even for me, a kind of a workaholic. I I couldn't work at some cases. My, My motivation wasn't there. My concentration wasn't there. So when I managed to work my way out of those uh, crises of depression and anxiety, which I've had on and off uh, since my late teens, I would say, if not earlier, um, I did what I do as a journalist, which is pitch stories about this stuff. And that, So I, I've written at this point a number of articles about anxiety, about depression, about men and mental health, which is a subject near and dear to me and um it's really turned into one of the most rewarding chapters in my career because i have seen the power of stating publicly i have anxiety i have depression i've gotten help for this stuff either through therapy or medication both of which i still use Um, and i have gotten better and i've gotten better in ways that were not conceivable to me during my darkest times. Uh, I I share some variation of that message all the time. And I say it's been so rewarding because it really seems to resonate with people. Um, I get emails occasionally of people who have appreciated what I've written. Uh, One of the really nastier aspects of dealing with depression and anxiety is the confusion and the loneliness that goes with it. And I think there's something remarkable that happens when you read uh, somebody else writing about this stuff. And I know this as a reader myself. Um, it's, it's a really wonderful thing, exchange that happens between the writer and the reader. And I've been on the receiving end of that as a reader, and I've been fortunate enough to experience that as a writer as well. And I, I just treasure those chances I get to talk about mental health.
0: Uh, you've said that, uh, that these issues remain stigmatized, especially among men. So How do, how do you overcome that?
1: Uh well, <laughs> that's a bigger conversation. But uh, one short thing you can do is is I do my part by talking about it. Mm. In in terms of activism, I, I think <laughs> the bang for your buck you get is incredible because I just do what comes naturally to me. I just talk about it. I talk about what I'm going through in honest ways. But when I did this as a man, when I think there is added stigma among men and mental health. It was remarkable the reaction I saw my first couple pieces about men and mental health, you know, were followed up by people asking me to write about this more In other instances I was asked on panels, it seemed by just raising my hand as a guy, and being willing to say I have depression, I have anxiety, I go to therapy, I'm on antidepressants, and this stuff is really helpful for me, I was doing something, I don't know if it's quite taboo, but unusual. Um, so that's one thing you can do to fight stigma. And that I do is just talking about it openly and without shame. I don't see these things as a failure on my part. I don't think I'm a weaker person because I have these things. I'm just one of millions of people who have these very normal things that happen to people with brains. And that's, uh, you know, depression and anxiety and there are treatments for these things that are quite effective. And I've been lucky enough to get those treatments and I'm at a place where, uh, unlike previous spells in my life, these issues don't really get in the way of, of my everyday life.
0: Uh, we've just about reached the end of our time, don't have time to talk about it, but I'll point, uh, I'll point listeners uh, to um, a fascinating article in the Boston Globe, t- headline that depression is no joke, so why are comedians so good at talking about it? We'll, we'll send readers there to read that uh, from Philip Isle. Uh, You can uh, find him at com, and uh, see a bunch of other writing there. And uh, the book is called Prescription for Pain, a fascinating and important uh, story. Uh, Philip Isle, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's been a pleasure.
2: It's time again for Utah StoryCorps, everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Logan. My name is Dixie Miskin. Neugebauer. I like people. I've always said I'd rather fight with a roommate than be alone. So (laughs) that was me. I had two years of college, so I had an associate degree, and I got a teaching job in exactly where I wanted in Blackfoot, Idaho. I did not realize at my young age what I was putting myself into emotionally and um, spatially, also. I got all ready to go. My parents took me down to the bus station, and we missed the bus. We were coming from Territon, Idaho, and we went to the first bus stop in Idaho Falls, and we missed it. And so we kept going to the next bus stop to try to pick up a bus, but they ended up taking me the whole way. And I had already had a place to live. It seemed like it was nice as long as my parents were there. But when I got there and and was dropped off, I felt very alone. And it's that time that I realized that I had left all of my clothes stacked on the bed at home in Territon. I had no clothes. So I went the first day. In the clothes that I had, which was good because they were professional clothes, but the next day wasn't going to be so good, and the next day, and the next day. Anyway, I was feeling quite bad, and I went to the school and was organizing books and things like that. And in comes this very friendly custodian, and he introduced himself as Clausen Hancock. And he saw that I was a young girl, kind of close to tears, And he was very kind to me, and that brought tears. (laughs) And he said, do you have a place to stay? Because my wife and I are alone, and you could come and stay with us. Oh, that sounded good. And I stayed with them, and they were very loving people. The mother, Margaret Hancock, made sure I ate breakfast. I could close the door and work on my grades and stuff like that. And sometimes their married daughter and foster children would come. And if I wanted to mingle with the family, I was very welcome. So that was homey to me. So that was the arrangement we had. I went to school, and uh, it was hard for me. It was scary to teach even though these are little first graders. There were some times when Miss Miskin, me, had to turn my back and kind of keep from crying because I was so nervous about what do I do in this situation. And, and there was a little girl that I remember specifically. She would come in, and it was a hot summer day, and she'd been out playing, and she would sit down, and she would go, and her bangs would blow up on her face. <laughs> And I knew just how she felt. And I remember a little boy named Matsuri, and he was so cute. Sometimes there were times where this teacher, Miss Miskin, would have to turn her back to the class and hee-haw, because some things were very, very funny. Because he was so cute, and I wouldn't laugh at him. And kids didn't laugh at him, but if I laughed, maybe, I don't know. He was just so cute all the time (laughs) the kids I remember the kids very very well and this is Utah StoryCorps tune in next week for more Logan stories same time same place support for Logan StoryCorps comes from Cache County and from USU Credit Union a division of Golden West